Amen. The Song of Solomon, chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Right from the jump, we're introduced to the Song of Songs. This is an interesting phrase in the Hebrew language. Uh, Because of its structure, there's emphasis. This is not just a song. It's not just the song. It is the song of literally all songs. That This is the number one jam when it comes to songs. That there is no other song like this one or that pales or can can be comparable to it. We're also given the author of the song, that being King Solomon. Uh, This is not the only song that Solomon wrote. In fact, according to 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32, we have recorded that Solomon was a prolific author, not just writing a multitude of varying proverbs, of which he's also the author, um, but he wrote an upwards of 105 songs. We don't have any of them recorded for us or penned, except for this one, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Right from the beginning, it's important to point out, obviously, that this is a song. Now, we have the, the, the poetic language. We have the lyrics of the song. Uh, long ago, the music itself, uh, which would have accompanied this particular song, has been lost. Um, it's worthy of noting that even up into the time of Jesus, um, the Hebrews, during the Feast of Passover, would gather there at the table, and they would sing the Song of Solomon, that this was a common song, and that there was a melody, there was a rhythm and a rhyme to it, obviously lost years ago, but keep in mind that we're reading here poetry that was constructed to be sung corporately, the Song of Songs. This particular song, with that context in mind, helps us avoid some problems, First and foremost, there is an attempt, and it creates a lot of complexities, of trying to establish behind the song some type of backstory or chronology. Uh, It really overcomplicates the song. This is a song. How many songs do you know that are meant to really be taken as a literal story? Not too many. In fact, there's an artistic element, uh, a background to it being a song. And so if you try to like place the song itself into some kind of chronological story that you can unpack, you're going to run into some complications. There are three different groups of people, a couple additional, but not not too important, uh, voices within the song, uh, parts to be sung. You have the Shulamite, you have the king or the beloved, and then you have the, the daughters of Jerusalem. And an easy way to think through this is that you have kind of within the song 15 reflections. Now, let me try to bring this into into a a way that you might understand it. This is a rock anthem, okay? This is is a rock song. This is to be sung. It's to be performed. There's some theatrical natures to it. Think of it maybe as a movie with a lot of um, flashbacks, Again, hard to take within a chronological order. Or even better, think of it maybe as a thematic album. I'm a real big fan of Radiohead. And years ago, they had an album called OK Computer. 
And one of the things that made OK Computer quite brilliant, if you were working through the lyrics, is how it was really a presentation of a famous book called Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, written by Douglas Adams. OK Computer was the paranoid android within the book. And so, like, you would go through the album, each song kind of playing a different part of the book, but not to be taken chronologically, just an artistic presentation of an idea. Think of the Song of Solomon. It's kind of like 15 separate songs sung by different artists at different points, all with a general feel, all with kind of a theme, but not presenting a chronological story. If you do that, you'll avoid a lot of problems within the text. People want to try to say that this is King Solomon writing about a very early love affair that he had with a very particular woman known as the Shulamite. And you'll find uh, certain commentators that will point back into the kings in a unique story where King David, Solomon's father, is on his deathbed. He's sick. He's ill. He can't get warm. And so as kind of uh, part of the, the, the medical attempts to, to ease his, his pain, to soften like his comfort in his dying days, they recruited a maiden, a fair maiden, a beautiful woman, a young gal, the Shulamite. And that it was this woman that was brought in to lie with King David to keep him warm. Uh, the text tells us that there was no sexual interactions or exchanges between King David and the Shulamite. But then the story unfolds that it was throughout this that Solomon saw this woman at the very beginning of his life and he fell in love. That This is the tale of, of Solomon's love affair with the Shulamite. It's recorded for us. It's presented. And that this happened at the beginning of his life. Now that's important to put it at the beginning of his life because the story of Solomon is a tragic one. For Solomon became very promiscuous. In fact, throughout the course of his life, we have the accounting that he not only had 700 wives, but he had 300 stripper girlfriends known as concubines. And this is the man of wisdom, right? Why would you have 700 mother-in-laws? I mean, what is the guy, what is the guy thinking? And so, but that creates a problem, right? So you have Solomon presenting this wonderful love affair. We get this beautiful story. It had to be the Shulamite. It had to be this gal with David because it had to be at the beginning of his life because of just how warped and perverted and perverse he became. Again, the problem with that is there isn't a chronology to the story. And, and I kind of reject actually this being the quote Shulamite, you get into the Hebrew language, there doesn't seem to be any evidence for that. I believe in my presentation of the text is that this is a fictional literary presentation of true love. I actually think that more than likely, just like with the book of Ecclesiastes, this probably came at the end of Solomon's life after he had so messed everything up. Where at the end of his life, he's like, hey, there's something beautiful and monogamy, one man, one woman for life. It's beautiful. Very similar to, again, Ecclesiastes, where Solomon goes out into the world to try to find meaning and purpose and life under the sun. And he reaches this conclusion, I've tried everything to find purpose. But vanity, it's all vanity. It's all vapor. And at the end, he reaches this conclusion. His swan song, what is the purpose of man? Fear God and obey his commandments. If you want to try to place the Song of Solomon and kind of the more macro understanding of why it's canonized, why it's in the book, which by the way, there's never been any dispute or argument about its legitimate place in scripture. Whether you go back to the ancient Hebrews or the early church fathers, the Song of Solomon has always been included in a section known as the poetic books. 
And there's some purpose to that. The book of Job, the longest of the poetic books, really deals with a, a perplexing human riddle, the riddle of suffering and pain. And then Ecclesiastes, Solomon will address another riddle, a, a big one, and that being our very existence and purpose and meaning. But within the same thread, the Song of Solomon, always included in the canonization because it addresses another complex human, human issue, riddle, love, and romance, marriage, what exists behind it all. So there are varying perspectives regarding the timing. Keep in mind, it's a song. As a result, I don't think it's an actual literal story. I think it's a presentation of an idea. I think an idea presented by Solomon at the end of his life when he had really desecrated the ideal. And he looks back and he wants it recorded down, the beauty and monogamy, heterosexual monogamy. Now there are, to be fair, a couple different ways in which you can approach the Song of Solomon. The ancient Hebrews presented this book as, again, the Song of Songs, similar to the Holy of Holies. It was viewed in rabbinical traditions as being the holiest of all of the books. In fact, it was forbidden for any male under the age of 30 to read the book because of some of the more scandalous aspects, the arousal of, of, of erotica. It was presented, though, as a bit of an allegory from the rabbinical traditions. And you can find a plethora of examples of this. Uh, and there's some truth to the fact that within the Old Testament, within the Old Covenant, uh, there was a picture presented, and, and it's a consistent picture, that of God being a husband and Israel being his wife. Uh, we find that, that typology, um, that allegory, um, consistent throughout the Old, the Old Testament. Um, several different examples where this comes to being, where God chooses a bride, and the Hebrew people are his wife. Um, the language used within even uh, the events of Sinai, um, when you get to the Exodus, you find it's literally a, a wedding ceremony. A covenant is being uh, arranged. An agreement is being, is being formed. Uh, I will be your husband. You will be my, my bride. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. And, and it's covenantal language. It's a very beautiful language. It's, it's very marital in the way it's presented. To the fact that when the children of Israel go and, and do the very things that God asked them not to, right? If you're gonna enter into an agreement uh, with a wife, uh, the first two commandments, don't, don't cheat on me. <laughs> this will be good if you just don't cheat on me. Don't have any other gods but me. I'm a jealous God. And then like, they break the first one and they go out and they, they do all the things that God told them not to do. And so he's wanting to communicate how he feels about this dynamic and what does he do? He commands a prophet by the name of Hosea to go and marry a whore, a woman by the name of Gomer, and to have kids with her knowing she'd go out and commit harlotry again. And God uses this whole picture, and Hosea has to go and still redeem her. And there's this whole thing where the community's like, why would this good dude go marry that woman? What's the point? And Hosea would say, this is how God feels about you. You're his bride that's a whore. 
And this is how he feels. Again, intense language, marital language. And so with that idea, again, consistent throughout the Old Testament of God being a husband and Israel being the bride, the rabbinical way of reading the Song of Solomon presents it as such that the king is God and the Shulamite is Israel. And that this is a love affair that God is trying to articulate his love for Israel through this romantic swan song. That's one way of looking at it. And there's some evidence to, to validate why you would, you would read it as such. Another way of, of interpreting the Song of Solomon gets us to the New Covenant. Because obviously Israel, there's some issues. And then we get to the church age. And, and, and the language that's used to try to describe the relationship that Jesus has with the church is also marital, isn't it? We have many examples of this where, where we're told, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Again, the same imagery that we find within the Old Testament of God having a wife, Israel, we find now Jesus having a bride. The church is actually known as what? The bride of Christ. And so when you get to the dispensation of the church age and and in line with the way that the rabbinical uh, scholars viewed the Song of Solomon, you had early church fathers that began to kind of carry over the allegory. Well, now this is no longer about God and Israel. This is about Jesus and the church and this love affair with the church. And, in fact, and I won't bore you with a lot of the history, but this ends up being uh, this perspective uh, kind of almost canonized within uh, the way that the church viewed the book for centuries, because along the lines, you also had this belief that there was something more godly in being asexual. In fact, you see this creeping into the church that if you really wanted to serve Jesus as part of the bride, you had to be celibate. And priests were then forbidden from marrying. And you had this whole move where sex was, was scandalous. It was, you even had this tradition, and this, this went on for like a thousand years, where like, okay, sex is necessary for procreation, but you shouldn't enjoy it. Don't you dare enjoy it because it's dirty. It's necessary for procreation, but it, you, just, you, should, you should just do it and not have any fun because God doesn't want you to have any fun because this is not about you. It's about the church and about Jesus. Kind of creeps into some of our worship songs, honestly. Where some of the language that's used, it's very gushy. So there's this perspective within the church that this is also an allegory, no longer about God and Israel, but now it's about Jesus and the church. And that became a, a, a predominant perspective, um, even as of today, the majority of the commentators that I've, I've read or even listened to, uh, by and large, the majority carry that secondary interpretation to the book that it's an allegory. I'll give you an example of, of how this actually plays out. Within the book, within the first chapter, I'll give you two examples. Um, verse 5, the Shulamite will say, I am dark but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. Now, she's talking about a suntan, and we'll, we'll, get to, we'll get into this. But you'll find commentators like Watchman Nee who will present that not in its, its literal 
understanding of, well, she's, she's got a suntan and she's feeling self-conscious about this. But as in like, you have the bride of Christ coming before the, the king and she understands her sin and the darkness of her soul. And that this is the insecurity that we find. Well, I, that's nonsense. It's not what the text says whatsoever, but that is the way that it, you would carry forth the allegory into how you would read things. Another example, verse 12, again, the Shulamite. While the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. Well, <laughs> they can't be talking about boobies. There's no way God's holy scripture would be talking about two female breasts. Couldn't be. No kidding. So you will find that passage interpreted as such. Well, it's not two boobs. It's two pillars. It's Moses and Elijah. It's the law, the prophets. It's the two tablets that the law was pinned on. You'll find all kinds of interpretation. And the myrrh in the middle. Well, remember, one of the gifts given to Jesus was myrrh. And Jesus died on the cross. And that it's in between these things that Jesus hung. No kidding. That, that's how, and, and you're like, well, if, we, if we're approaching the text like that, where does it stop? Like, I mean, we're, we're the basis of our interpretations or our understandings, which really leads to a third interpretation, and that is, I think, of all of them, the creepiest. Again, Israel, God, okay, we can understand some of that, that, that playing. And then Jesus in the church, again, we have the, the essence of that within the, the, the New Testament too, but it'll be carried forth of it's Jesus and you. I just feel a little gay about it. I'm just going to be honest. That might get me in trouble. Like Jesus is my king. He's my savior. I lay down my life for him. Appreciate it all. But I'm also a man. He's a man. I love him. But like how often? You get into some of the language here and you're like, Jesus, I love you, but I don't know in that way. I'm not sure my spike nard is flowing forth in your presence. I don't, I'm not sure I'm going to eat of your fruit. Again, <laughs> the third, kind of the creepiest. What's the book about? Well, this is where I, th I really think it's important to have a solid hermeneutic. What's a hermeneutic? It's the way in which you approach scripture. It's the way in which you study scripture. It's the way in which you interpret scripture. Meaning, does the Bible use allegories? Absolutely. The Bible, no doubt, uses allegorical language. Does the Bible employ varying literary techniques, metaphors, and whatnot? For sure. But you know, one of the things that the Bible always does when employing those type of literary techniques, the Bible always tells you it's doing it. It'll use words like like and as, and you find a lot of beautiful imagery within, within the Song of Solomon itself. But, it, but the, the language that's used indicates the way in which you should view the language being used. Here's the problem with 
All three interpretations, whether the book is about God and Israel, Jesus and the church, or Jesus and you, is that at no point in no way does the text ever tell us to view it as such. Never, at no point, is the allegory mentioned or referenced or established. In fact, unique to this book, and you might throw Esther into the same category. Do you know how many times God is mentioned? Zero. Kind of interesting to have a book of the Bible where God isn't mentioned at all. Not only that, one of the things that makes Song of Solomon unique is, is that a lot of the Hebrew language that's used, you'll only find in the song. You won't find it anywhere else. Beyond that, there's no mention of any theology at all. There's no mention of salvation and redemption. Like all the things that the allegory is supposed to be presenting in regards to our relationship with Jesus, etc. None of that, none of that language is carried forth in the terminology or the descriptions that's used. There's no salvation mentioned or redemption, justification, propitiation, there's none of it. Like the plain reading of the text, again, not, not viewing it as an actual story, but a song, kind of stepping back a little bit from a hardline chronology, is that it's a presentation of two people in love. Two people that love each other. And in, in the expression of their love, have sex. That's the baseline understanding of the book, of the song. And so our presentation will be as such. Um, if you really want to view this book, again, you got wonderful passages. His banner over me is love. That's great. Um, there are, are great commentators, Bible teachers that you can go to and get all the allegory you want. Um, I, I just don't agree that that's an appropriate way to read the song because the song doesn't tell us as such. I think the easier understanding is to take it as a literal love story, and that's not something that we should be afraid of. In fact, I think it's, it's, it's appropriate that God decided to use Solomon to present a perspective of sexuality, of sex between a man and a woman, to even use the descriptive details that he uses, because guess what? God made sex. In fact, God made sex, and God also determined how sex was to be enjoyed and what it was to be used for. So before we can get any further into the Song of Solomon, we do have to talk a little bit about sex, about sexuality, about you and me, about a man and a woman, and about God and what sex is about. It's been said that even though God might be nowhere in the book, he is everywhere. Because there is something about sex that is divine and that this book intends to celebrate and emphasize. And you know, as a church, we have seeded the conversation for too long about sex to the world. You remove God from the equation, you look around at our world, that's what you get. And I think regardless of where you land on things, you can, we can all agree that it's confusing. That the world is by and large confused about sex, about gender, about marriage. 
And instead of saying, hey, guess what? God has a lot to say about it. We get prudish and in our bubble. And we don't want to talk about real things. Well, for the next eight weeks, we're going to talk about real things. Yeah, eight weeks related to sexuality. If you would, go to the left in your Bible. To the second chapter of your book. Genesis chapter 2. Again, you might find a little bit of this to be academic. I find it to be important for establishing an idea that's crucial to then, I think, getting the most out of what the Song of Solomon intends to provide. So God creates. He takes six days to do it. The seventh he created. On the sixth day, creation reached what you might call a crescendo when God created man. Humanity. Um, and all the language that's used to describe the creation of man is different from the way that the, the rest of creation is presented. Uh, the biggest example, again, if you're just reading through it, is that God spoke all things into existence, didn't he? In the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then, like with the church, God said, and then it happened. God was speaking all things out of nothing, ex helio. With the birds of the sky, he spoke them into existence. With the sea life, he spoke them into existence. With the ma land animals, mammals, he spoke them into existence. And then we're also told that of, of his creation, God uniquely within each stage did it according to their kind. With the instructions to, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth as far as the animals go. And, and every bit of creation had a unique way in which they would propagate the species. But then you get to humanity. And you get to, we'll just jump with verse 26 of chapter 1. We're told, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all of the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That God blessed them and God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. Now you get to chapter 2 and we get more details into the process by which God created man, humanity, into his image and likeness. Now again, in verse uh, 27, we have the mention of male and female. But chapter 2 gives us a little bit of an expanded understanding of how that was created, how that was formed. Now, God spoke all things into existence, but when it came to humanity, God broke the pattern. Instead of speaking Adam into existence, what did God do? God stoops down and we're told that he forms man out of the dust of the earth. Now that's, that's different, right from, from the beginning. Like there's a whole different creative element of which God's now going to employ when it comes to, to humanity. And why? Well, we're given a little indication because humanity is going to be different than everything else that God created. There'll be something distinct, unique about man. So God personalizes, I'm going to create man in our image and likeness. There's going to be something divine about hum humanity, about human beings that makes them distinct from everything else I create. You are distinct from everything else God created because you're created in his image, in his likeness, and God formed man from the dust of the earth, molded him, shaped him. And then what did God do? 
Again, the, the language is it's, it's so unique and it's so distinct. But God doesn't say, Adam, get up. Now he breathes life into him. God stoops down mouth to mouth and breathes life into what he had formed. And then you had, you had man. You had Adam, the man. Now God, in the process of this, immediately understands that Adam has a problem. That unlike everything else in creation, there was none compatible, comparable to Adam. He had no companion. Everything was created man and woman or male and female with, a, with distinct genders of companionship and therefore procreation. But with Adam, God's like, it's not good for this man to be alone. Now, this is before sin. This is before the fall. This is before all the mess and muck that happens. Even in that form, God's like, this dude needs a companion. He doesn't need to be alone. And so what happens? God reveals the need to Adam by, by causing him to, he, he's instructed to name all the animals. Adam's like, wait, wait, there's nothing comparable to me. And then God causes him to go into a deep sleep, and we're told that he takes a rib, and again, there's some beauty to the language that's used, a, a part, literally, a side of the man gets removed, is formed into the woman, Eve. He wakes, the woman is brought, and then and you have this language that Adam said, verse 23 of 22, he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, the, the language, the bone of my bones, the flesh of my flesh, realizes that Adam understood something important immediately. It was, it was instinctual. Adam went to sleep and he awoke and he recognized that a part of him was missing. And then he sees Eve and he recognizes that the part of him that's missing that existed the night before was in her. So what happens here is God makes humanity and then God takes humanity and what does he do? He divides humanity into two genders, male and female. Beforehand, Adam had full masculinity and femininity in one. But now he's separated. We have a distinction uniqueness, a difference. You have now the man, you have the woman. They were one, now they've been separated. And then what happens? God's like, now you two separately distinct people come back together in marriage to be what? Well, we're told, therefore, therefore, what's it there for? Well, the separation that's taken place that Adam recognizes, wow, part of me, is now with her, so for us to be whole, we've got to come back together. We're told a man shall leave his father and mother, which is interesting because neither of them had father and mother, and they shall be joined, he shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So, so what you have within marriage is a rejoining together of what God distinctly set apart. So God took man and split man into man and woman and said, now I want the two of you to come back together to be a whole person. Okay, you're understanding the language here. 
Now, th- this was to take place within a marital covenant. You see, the great lie that our society has, 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 has wrought concerning marriage is that marriage, um, that it doesn't matter regarding gender or sexual distinctions. In fact, marriage is, homosexual marriage is, is a declaration that, that, that unity can be found in sameness. Whereas God defines marriage as unity in a distinct difference. The two that are distinctly different, man and woman, come back together to be one, is what we have presented here. They shall become one flesh. Now, how does the oneness that's being described here practically manifest? Well, we consummate a marriage through a particular activity that's known as sex. The word sex is actually an interesting word. It means to sever, which means that in actuality, the the activity of sex could be understood as the reconnecting of something severed, which is what is happening here. The man and the woman have been severed, and now they're to become one through sex or a reconnecting. So sexual activity is the reconnecting of something that God originally severed. It's, it's, It's bringing about a unique oneness. Now, we talk about sex. What's the point of sex? God God wants sex to be about two people becoming one. The greatest way to illustrate that is what happens when you have sex. Procreation. You know, to illustrate the oneness that is supposed to happen in sexual activity, God's like, I got a way to do this. I'm going to produce out of that activity another human being that is half of him and half of her. It's the perfect illustration of oneness. Now, is procreation what sex is about? No. It's something that results from sexual activity, and there's a purpose in that to illustrate a oneness. Is sex just about enjoyment? No, although it's very enjoyable if you've never done it. And it's meant to be so. Why? Because obeying God is always enjoyable. There's something to be enjoyed in obeying God. But thirdly, sex is not just about procreation. It is not just about having fun. There is something deep within humanity that sexual activity is aimed at accomplishing, and that is the rejoining together of what was separated. The goal of sex is oneness between a man and a woman in marriage. He illustrates that by having kids. He rewards that by having fun, but the goal from a biblical understanding, is oneness. That's that's an interesting thing. Because this goes beyond even just the emotional element. There's plenty of studies that illustrate and emphasize the oneness that happens in an emotion, like the emotional connection that happens when people have sex. Which is why there's nothing more damaging to the human soul than, than being promiscuous. 
it will, it will, it will yield a damage that you can't even articulate, which is God, why God, like this whole thing he creates and he safeguards and he's like, have fun, knock yourself out, it's great, but keep it in this parameter. It's very particular about that. And that's consistent throughout all of scripture. One man, one woman for life, heterosexual monogamy. It's God's blueprint and it's, it's plan for a reason. Emotionally, we understand there's connections made. You've experienced it. There's, different, there's a difference between a boyfriend breaking up with you when you didn't have sex versus a boyfriend that breaks up with you when you have, when you've shared that part of yourself. You can't explain it, you can't articulate it, but you feel it and you know it. But I would, I would say that there's something even more beyond that that isn't quite understood or discussed, and that is how this ties in with us being made in the image and likeness of God. Because humanity is not unique in the fact that we have sex, are we? Apes have sex, giraffes have sex, elephants, I'm not sure how they do that, but they do. All the different animals have some type of sex, but it's not oneness, is it? There's something different between humanity having sex. Why? Well, because of the verse we read, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. There's something about the separation, the unification, the likeness of God, because what's the result? Well, we get to it. Again, go back to verse 24, chapter two, and they shall become one flesh. We talk a lot about flesh. But the, the, the interesting word, the important word, is one. One. You know, it's not an accident if you turn a few pages to your right to Deuteronomy chapter 6. In one of the most famous passages in the Old Covenant, chapter 6, I'll read a couple verses beginning with verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. Want to take a guess where else you find that word? Akkad or one? And the two shall become one flesh, a cod. So God's saying, by making the equivalent, you shall become one, and then introducing himself, the Lord your God is one. Exists in three distinct beings, but we're one. God is trying to tell us that there is something about the, the akkad, the oneing together of two people in a sexual activity under a covenant made with God, to the very person of God, that there is something within the sexual activity between a man and a woman and what results in the wanting of these two people that is divine in its very nature. A cod. You see, I would take, I would take a guess, or I'll throw out a supposition that it is absolutely possible for two people without Christ to have a part of wanting. They can make a commitment, they can even be monogamous, they can even spend their whole life together, be faithful to each other. 
But what's interesting is that humanity is not a dichotomy. Our oneness doesn't exist in just the two becoming one. But again, Solomon in Ecclesiastes talks about a threefold chord, a third element necessary to oneness, especially because we're fallen now. The whole design was before sin, and now we have sin. You see, the man and the woman coming together and having sex, one person bearing their soul and their insecurities to another human being doing the same thing, the act of two people in their insecurities bearing themselves to one another in in an act of love and submission and care and tenderness. His banner over us is love. See, there's something about sex within the conframes of God himself that is very spiritual. This is why you make your vows before God. This is why you include God into your marriage. You see, the Song of Songs, it it presents for us a beautiful picture of sex and love and marriage, but in doing so, it presents for us a beautiful picture, something divine about God himself that something spiritual happens between two people when God is included, when the man and the woman come together under the banner of the Lord, that there's a spiritual component. It's not just an emotional and it's not just a physical, but there is a spiritual connection that is made where two people become like God, become one. Think about it in this illustration. God makes us in his image and likeness. And all that you learn about God from the Genesis narrative, the first thing you mainly learn about God is that he's a creator. That God likes to create. And he makes us into his image and likeness. And then what does he, what does he give us the power to do? To do something nothing else in creation can do. It's to create new people that are born in the image and likeness of God. That are given a divine spark that nothing else in creation, nothing else created through sexual activity in creation, nothing else can rot but God himself through two people. Think about your kids. It's not just that you created two people in your image and likeness, which you did, but you created two souls in the image and likeness of God, that God used you to create. It's beautiful. Sex teaches us about God. It illustrates things about God. It's why this is the song of all songs. It's why it's holy. It's graphic. And we're going to have fun with that. Because we're going we're gonna to teach through this very literally. Because, because God made it. And God canonized it. And God wants us to read about it. And God wants us to enjoy it. And if you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, I'm single. This isn't exactly really relevant, Zach. Well, I hope it will be for you. 
because this is going to teach you about an ideal that you want. And then there are some of you that are like, well, I've already totally screwed up that ideal. Well, that doesn't mean that you can't come back to an ideal. And you can't say, you know, God, <laughs> I have done it the wrong way. And you, know, you, don't have to, you don't have to convince me, Pastor, that it was the wrong way. I feel it. Like every time, I felt like I just lost a little myself. I don't know why. I don't know how, but I, I feel it. Well, you can come back to an ideal. This is how God wants it to be. It's not something to shy away from. It's not something to run from. It's something to look at, to sit under. And for married couples, I'm just going to say this right now. I've been studying Song of Solomon for a solid two and a half months. Mainly because we were supposed to go to Israel and, and then we didn't. And, and it was like my, my plan changed. We decided to do a Christmas study. And said, I was thinking about starting this a couple months ago. So I've been studying this. And if you're like, if you're like, well, pastor, you know, you're kind of kicking me in the shin every Sunday. I'm already there. Like you look at the ideal and you look at the beauty and you look at the responsibilities and what generates romance and what the man's role is and what the woman's role is. And you see how God made it all. And you're like, I am a knucklehead. Like even the practical things of the environment that you want to have love in. There's creativeness to this. That's why we're titling the series, Making Love. This is not two people that have fallen in love as if it's something you trip and fall in, into. Isn't our language so weird? I just fell in love. Which means like my brain just went away and I just wasn't thinking at all and I just tripped and fell right into it. We say, I love you. Well, that's a verb. That means I'm actively doing something to show love to someone else. But that's not what we often mean. When we say we're in love, what we're saying is that I'm actively doing what is necessary to love that person, and they're doing the same for me. I'm not worried about myself. I'm preferring them, and they're doing the same. And we're in this beautiful cocoon of selflessness and beauty. When we say we're making love, It's creative language. We're saying we're creating something. We're creating love. If your relationship with your spouse has grown dim or you feel it's stagnant or dry, two things. One, you're probably not having sex. And two, sex will help a lot. Because guess what you do? You make something. There's something made. We will cover more than one verse next Sunday. Father, thank you for your word.